May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. It is apposite that this morning's reading has come on the eve of what will be the greatest funeral the world has ever seen. I'm referring, of course, to the funeral of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. In terms of the number of people who will watch on television, the number and extraordinary diversity of heads of states from different countries who will be attending, and the many others who will be participating in various ways, such as watching the cortege pass through the streets, or themselves filing past the coffin in the Cathedral of St. Giles or in Westminster Hall, this will be like no other, ever. The readings today address an age-old question. How do those who are rich, powerful, famous, and in positions of authority deal with the rest of us, especially the oppressed, the poor, and the needy? And how do those of us who are even moderately wealthy or influential deal with others and with our money, those who are less fortunate than ourselves? Unquestionably, Queen Elizabeth was one of the world's rich and famous people. Her power is a matter of debate, even among scholars, but she certainly was influential to so great an extent that it was akin to power. In Paul's first letter to Timothy this morning, he urges that we pray for sovereigns and all in high positions so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in dignity. Peace and dignity for all is God's command, the right of all. Over and over again, in both the Old Testament and the New, it is made clear to us that God is on the side of the poor, the needy, and the oppressed. To use a contemporary colloquial expression, he has their back. And this is made most clear to us in Jesus' cry of desolation on the cross. Jesus, the Son of God, and God incarnate, rose again from the dead, and our religion was born. It reminds us most pertinently of the assurance in the alternative psalm this morning that God will raise up the poor and the needy. A contemporary of Isaiah, <coughs> Amos was one of <coughs> 12 minor Old Testament prophets. The grower of sycamore figs, he lived among shepherds and was one of them. And his spur showed a special concern for the needy and the oppressed. Amos remonstrates with the people of God for going astray by ill-treating others, failing to embrace God's idea of justice, failing to care for one another, and in doing so forgetting about God. And in this, this morning's Old Testament reading, Amos tells us that God will hold accountable those who trample upon the poor and needy. This morning's Gospel reading is a difficult text. The steward of the assets of the rich man mismanages or squanders the money of his master. Knowing that he is about to be dismissed, the manager dishonestly, in other words without authority, reduces the debts of his master. He does so because he is fearful that once dismissed, he will be unable to work or be reduced to beggary. He hopes that the debtors whom he has saved will welcome him to their homes. 
To our surprise, the rich man commends the dishonest steward <coughs> for his shrewdness. Among lawyers, there is an expression with which all of them are familiar. In law, context is everything. And it is a useful concept to bear in mind when one is trying to understand certain passages in Scripture, especially in the New Testament. <coughs> the parable of the dishonest manager follows after the parable of the prodigal son and after a short discussion about law and the kingdom of God before the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. If you read this part of Luke together with Matthew's account of the Sermon on the Mount, it became, becomes clear that Jesus started to attract large crowds to listen to him. And when he did so, the Pharisees began to take an interest in him and began to ask questions. To many people, the word Pharisee is synonymous with evil. This is an imperfect understanding. In many respects, the Pharisees were a more liberal class or sect than the Sadducees. They were a devout, serious, and scholarly group of people. They believed in an afterlife, which the Sadducees did not. Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, and the Apostle Paul were all Pharisees. The Pharisees believed in wealth. In Luke 16, verse 14, they were described as persons who loved money. We must remember that throughout the Old Testament, wealth was regarded as a blessing. This is not to say that the ancient Jews considered wealth a reward for good behavior and poverty a punishment for sin. But they certainly thought it was better to be rich than to be poor. And subject to certain important qualifications, most of us probably believe the same most of the time. The tax collectors were rapacious and extortionate, acting on behalf of a foreign occupying power. It is no wonder that they were unpopular. But, as is so often the case, the rich were an easy target. From then could be plucked with ease the low-hanging fruit. And the wealth of the rich was conspicuous. Accordingly, it is hardly surprising that the Pharisees were appalled that Jesus associated with tax collectors and other miserable sinners. Who could this man be? And what was the secret of his extraordinary attractiveness? Of all the gospel writers, Luke was particularly concerned with an age-old question, one that has dogged us since the agricultural revolution. Why are some rich and others poor? We have all heard and inwardly digested the famous words from the Magnificat, which was penned by him, Luke. He hath filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he hath sent empty away. With the Pharisees present and asking him questions, Jesus begins to sermonize cryptically, and at some length using different parables, to address this question of wealth and poverty. And he gives no simple answer. If he had, there would be no need for economists. We have a clue that although the, debt, the steward's debt relief program may have been dishonest, he had not been about to be dismissed for dishonesty, but for incompetent management or mismanagement. Note that scripture uses the term squandered rather than stole. 
and also that the steward is able to undertake a few more transactions before being discharged from service. And here we see ourselves. We are stewards of the earth and of whatever wealth we have. As we remind ourselves at every funeral, we brought nothing into the world and we take nothing out. It is wrong to mismanage the resources of the earth. So why is the steward commended? The steward realizes that when the chips are down, when all is said and done, when the horses are unsaddled and the campfires lit, it is our relationships with others that matter more than riches. And these relationships with others should be determinative of our relationship with wealth. The steward may have helped the rich man realize this truth, which would explain why he commends the steward. This truth about wealth ends up mattering more to the rich man than a few bad debt losses. It is important to note that not once does Jesus condemn wealth. This is not surprising. I hardly need tell a congregation like this that wealth has first to be created before it can be distributed. And if one removes all incentive to create wealth, there will be none to distribute. <coughs> it is our relationship with wealth and what we do with it that matters. <coughs> this Jesus makes clear several times over. Why does Luke include this story in his gospel? Perhaps significantly, in both the parable of the prodigal son and the parable of the steward, <coughs> the failing of the sinful individual concerned was concerned with the squandering of wealth. Now here I may sound like a true Quaker. You may or may not know that several of the great banking families of England were originally Quakers. The Barclays family were among them. They were highly averse to squandering wealth, extravagant spending, or being ostentatious. Wealth has to be carefully managed and husbanded. One must be honest in one's dealings and use one's worldly wealth for the greater good. Irresponsible lending, bad lending practice, was akin <coughs> to squandering wealth. Much the same tradition has lived on in Calvinist Switzerland. You have probably all heard of the expression, the gnomes of Zurich. A friend of mine, who is an investment manager in Zurich, told me that you can sit opposite someone in a Swiss train, and unless you look very carefully at the cloth of his suit, shirt and tie, and his cufflinks, you would not realize that you are looking at one of the richest men in the world. So we get the, the answer to the big question posed this morning, towards the end of the passage in the Gospel. We cannot serve two masters. <coughs> we cannot serve God and money. Excuse me. Get some water. We cannot serve God and money. The same message is conveyed in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 24. There it is made part of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus explains why. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. 
Paul, in his letter to the Romans, also explains why. We are the slaves to the one we obey. We may have money, but we must not let it corrupt and destroy us. The admiration for Queen Elizabeth, so tangible in the television coverage these last few days following her death, may also give us the answer to the big question. Do not let your head be turned by wealth, fame, or power. In the broadcasts which have been made, much has been said over and over again of her religious faith. In the words of the prophet Micah, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.